0: Ken, how are you doing? Welcome to the Smart Firefighting interview.
1: Thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here and represent the North American Fire Training Directors.
0: For those of us that don't know you and your background and and the North American Training Directors, and I don't want to butcher it, so please, if you could bestow some of your your background and your knowledge, that'd be great.
1: Sure. Thanks, Kevin. So I've been with the North American Fire Training Director since January of 2020. I was hired as their first ever Executive Director, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but my background is I'm a, uh, a graduate, if you will, from Massachusetts Fire Service, having done 35 years. I've worked for both the Department of Defense as a civilian aircraft rescue firefighter. I worked as a volunteer and a call firefighter in um, municipal departments and then got my lifelong ambition of becoming a career firefighter. I started out in a suburban community here in Western Mass and spent 26 years, rose to become their chief. And when I had done those 26 years, I had the opportunity to go to Concord, Mass, which is famous for the shot heard around the world, the Battle of uh, Concord. And I was uh, honored to serve as their chief for six years, an additional six years, and then I left my fire service career and I went to uh, the National Fire Protection Association for eight years. And there I first served as the director of the uh, division that did standards for first responders. So all the NFPA standards that deal with first responders. And, you know, people have a love-hate relationship with NFPA. Some people love it. Some people hate it. The story I like to share is I, as a young career firefighter, within the first two years of being on the job, was active in our union bargaining. And and one of the first contract negotiations I was involved in, we had to bargain to have protective clothing that met NFPA standards. They were brand new at that time. And they cost more, but they cost more for a reason. The equipment would cost more. And many fire departments were just buying off the shelf raincoats and safety helmets and rubber gloves and rubber boots and it wasn't designed for the fire service so to me nfpa is the reason i enjoyed 35 years and retired with my health did eight years at nfpa after six years with the responder group went over to the business group as the liaison to the emergency responders and then we left there and um, retired to my home out here in ware massachusetts which is in western mass and uh, was lucky enough to be selected by the North American Fire Training Directors as their first executive director. North American Fire Training Directors is a membership organization comprised of a very select group of people. It's those individuals who have statutory designation as either a state or a provincial wide training organization. So when you're at that level, there's only one per state or province. And what's interesting is across our membership, we have some training academies that are nested within colleges. They're a school within a university. We have some training academies that are standalone governmental units of the state with their own oversight in reporting to a commissioner who then reports to the governor. And then we even have some instances where some of these academies are being managed by uh, a consortium of fire chiefs and other interested individuals so they're not an act they're not an academic institution they're not a governmental unit they're more a consortium managed resource so we have very different our potential membership pool the 50 US states the 13 Canadian provinces then we have the territories the US territories that are eligible as well as all of because it's north america we extend into Um, Central America and some of those others so our potential population if you will is in probably around 80 or 90 but we focus mainly on the continental US and Canada right now we're at about the 45 members in our membership and one of our plans is to try and and expand that and what do we provide to our members we provide a peer-to-peer support group being a training director is a challenging job, especially in the world today. So we provide best practices. We have a email list that we share information and they can ask questions. Every other week, we have virtual community meetings where members, about 40 members, will gather for an hour via Zoom. And we will discuss the topic of the day. We'll bring in some professional development and our strategic partners to give an update. We have an annual conference, which we just had last week. It was very successful, albeit it was virtual and not face-to-face. And we also provide representation on national-level organizations, such as the National Advisory Council, known as the NAC, the Congressional Fire Services Institute, the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program. We provide guidance and leadership there. And we represent the training directors across a wide variety of public and private forums. That's who we are, and that's what we do.
0: Wow. No shortage of things going on. And I know NAFTD is very lucky and fortunate to have you.
1: Oh, and well, thank you, Kevin.
0: Of course. And, and I, I was fortunate to partake in the first ever NAFTD virtual conference last week, mm-hmm. which by all virtual events, I mean, I think everyone's got their opinions on being zoomed out or not, but I thought it was, it was jam-packed with a lot of amazing speakers, and I took a lot away from it. Um, what, what was some of your takeaways from – this first virtual training and and some of the feedback.
1: So I think every individual who comes up through the fire service has that planning perspective in the back of their mind. They're always saying, well, what if, what if this happens, what am I going to do? And what if that happens? So when I was the exec appointed as the executive director, um, COVID was just a topic in the newspaper, but it was not a headline. Well, within two months, it was a headline. And we began to see the true impact of COVID. And we began to see that Portland, the Oregon state, was being hard hit, was one of the first real hotspots in the United States. And we began to brainstorm and say, what does that mean for us? We had a face-to-face conference schedule. We had a, a venue that was booked. And we began to say, what does that mean? Well, We had a contract, and if we did not make a decision about what we were going to do by a certain time, we were going to be on the hook for a lot of money. So there was one incentive. Then there's the health and safety of our members, which is the most important incentive for our decision-making. So we came to the realization we could not do face-to-face. We had to work with our venue, and we were able to keep that location for next year, next September. Our plan is to conduct a face-to-face conference in Portland. And uh, so the board says, "Well, what do we want to do?" And I said, "Well, let's have a virtual conference." I'd seen these things. I figured, "Hey, we got Zoom. We can do this." They said, "Sure, go figure it out." <laughs> That's like the dog chasing the car. I caught the car, and then I had to say, "Oh my God, I have no idea what to do."
0: <laughs> what do I do now?
1: <laughs> yeah, what do I do now? You know, technology makes everything so available. I mean, there's Zoom, there's Google, there's Microsoft Teams, uh, you name it. So and I had used Google Meetings with some success and had started to use Zoom, and I said, well, how hard can it be? Well, I found out, I don't wanna call it hard, but it's not as easy as doing a single meeting. There's obviously a lot of moving parts. So I started to do research, I started to look for articles online, talk to people who had done their own large meetings and take that information. And over a period of about two and a half months, Uh, was able to come up with a schedule of presenters and we did a survey of our membership to see how long of each session they thought was appropriate and some topics. We were able to use that feedback to construct our presentation schedule and our agenda and I was very fortunate that one of our member organizations, the South Carolina Fire Academy and Chief Dennis Ray, the director, offered the use of Zoom webinar as opposed to Zoom meetings. Which has a lot of technical advantages, and has some good um, resources for myself as the producer. So we went to Zoom webinar, and uh, we had a success, a very successful event over two days. And we included a business meeting on day two. We had a social after event activity on day one. We did some trivia and named that tune. Just we couldn't go to the lounge and have a happy hour, so we constructed kind of a virtual happy hour. And I think we had. Uh, Over the two days, I think we had eight presentations, nationally known speakers, uh, people who are the best in their craft, and it went awesome. Uh, We had great interaction between attendees and presenters. The presenters were top shelf. Dan Madzikowski from UL and the Fire uh, Services Research Institute. Uh, Chief Tanya Hoover from the US Fire Administration, National Fire Academy. Casey Grant from DRA, consultants talking about smart fire academies, which was really a focus on day one. And Dr. Dennis O'Neill, formerly the superintendent of the National Fire Academy and the Deputy US Fire Administrator, talking about what's the future look like for training directors? because It's gonna be very different. Then on day two, we focused on social media. We had a presentation on using social media for training. Virtual certification testing, how can you test people so that they can qualify for pro board and IFSAC certification virtual means, and then lastly, legal considerations for your social media policy at a training academy. So it was really a, a jam-packed day and we it. We had a director's roundtable where three current training directors shared their perspective. What do I know now that I didn't know then? What do I wish I knew? And then we had another session where two training directors, one who's been a training director for less than six months, the other who's been a training director for 20 years, Share their perspective about where is the role of the training director going, and what's the future look like? So, as you said, it was jam-packed. There was a lot, and uh, in my estimation, and based on some of the initial feedback on surveys, uh, a very successful event.
0: That's great, Ken. And yeah, it's it's no easy feat to to host your first large-scale virtual event. I've done a few and and have failed, but you some on some, and then done better on the others, and. It's, it's, I'm excited to see the success from the first one, and know the next one will be even that much better. And and I enjoyed hearing you talk about usage of Zoom, uh, using as a video platform. Uh, and kind of looking at COVID was happening in early January, February, whether we like to believe it or not. And we needed to make decisions, but NFTD still needs to exist. NFTD still needs to find ways to provide the services that you provide to your your end users and your constituents. And I think it's interesting to see how you've already started to embrace technology as an enabler mm-hmm. to allow you to do what you want to do. So I, I'd love to know more about kind of from where fire training academies are now. Those different mm-hmm. segments you mentioned, from within colleges, standalone within the mm-hmm. state, or managed by consortiums. Like, sort of where are they now, and and sort of what does the future of training academies look like? And and I know COVID has created such a framework that we have to adopt around. So just love to hear sort of your thoughts on that.
1: Sure. Those academies who are affiliated with an educational institution, a university or college system, they had, um, it's my observation, a little bit of a leg up in that some of their organizations were already using Blackboard and some other means for remote learning. So as things began to ramp up, These organizations had some internal resources within the academic institution infrastructure that they could draw upon. And they had been doing some of that. I think as a general rule, the use of Blackboard and those other remote learning platforms had been out in existence amongst the training academies for probably the past several years. But I don't, I would observe, I don't think it was seen as a primary method of delivery. It was a method of delivery perhaps to reach the far reaches of the state or to deal with a particular topic that had interest but it would be difficult to bring everybody together or to bring the presenter together. So remote learning became a value add for that. But it had the challenge that not every organization was adept at supporting. And when I say organization, those were the learners who were coming to the academy for training. They didn't have the technology, or necessarily the infrastructure, or necessarily the understanding to be able to use these in a meaningful way. So these academic linked training academies had a leg up and were working in that way. They, As they began to see COVID and the lockdown and the quarantine and the precautions, they made that pivot to see technology as an enabler I would say within hours, they just it, it it almost was in their DNA. Bigger organization was doing it, we will follow and we can draw upon that and customize it to our experience and then put it out there. So we saw Texas A&M University of Illinois, um, they made that pivot early and they have done wonderful things continually. University of Illinois, Illinois uh, Fire Service Institute. Then also went to Facebook and used social media as an adjunct for their distance learning with great success. They're not only serving an Illinois audience, which is their mission, they're serving a national audience to Canada and the United States. And now they're serving a global audience with consistent, strong attendance, nearing the 100 from global students. So, in terms of meeting their mission, they, they've been very successful. So, those organizations made the pivot quickly. The state um, funded, if you will, organizations, the ones that are connected to state boards and commissions, a little bit slower. But nonetheless, where they are today is they're all utilizing remote learning to some degree. And those that are managed by consortiums are also doing it. But we have that hierarchy, if you will, of those who were maybe a little f- leaning forward a little further but where they are today is just about every state and provincial training academy is utilizing a technology platform for remote learning. And I would make an observation because you had mentioned how we had transitioned to Zoom. I was concerned and I mentioned the student learner or the participant in the virtual conference, would they be able to have a good experience by being a learner or a participant via Zoom? Or whatever the platform is. One of the things NAFTI did that I think was extremely helpful in having a successful con- uh, conference, and I mentioned our virtual community meetings every two weeks, we exposed our members to the use of the Zoom and the Google meetings platform well in advance of the actual conference. And I could see where the community coming together became adept at existing as a community not just as an individual learner but as a community of 40 people together on a conference with discipline utilizing the chat being kind of intuitive about where the meeting's going what are the breakpoints, and how do i manage it i think that was a huge enabler of our success as the virtual conference we didn't just introduce this for the first time if you will we had done technology-based meetings and it really laid the groundwork for a successful conference.
0: Yeah, you got to probe it a little bit. And you did a great job of, of that. And I think video conferencing and video webinars is, is a great teaspoon, tablespoon to adopting and leveraging technology. But I think as you and I both know, that truly is just scratching the surface. That is just the is almost now the norm. It's not even, a, oh, it's a nice to have you. You must be able to do this. So I'd love to know from you from the, let's say you could call it the future of the Smart Fire Training Academy, what are your thoughts on some of the future technology, whether it's from uh, using AR, VR for training, whether it's using data in a new way to visualize problem sets, whether it's standards, I mean, this could go anywhere, but we'd love to know some of your thoughts on other aspects of technology as it could integrate to the Smart Fire Training Academy.
1: Sure. And thank you for raising the Smart Fire Academy because several years ago, the Fire Protection Research Foundation, working in conjunction with the um, um, a government agency, a federal agency here in the US, they did the roadmap to smart firefighting. And they looked at smart firefighting and they said, we have all these technology enablers out there, whether it's remote data sensors or uh, altered uh, reality, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, where is the confluence of all of this that it comes together and really becomes an achievable tool that respects what the fire service is doing in a manner that they can use it to achieve their mission. So there was quite a, it was a year-long study. It's a, it's a landmark report and it's been cited many, many times and it was NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology was the agency that funded it and partnered with the research foundation.
0: And one one thing I want to say is point there, you, you brought up a good point where it's this technology, how can it be a, a tool that is providing some outcome and providing some mm-hmm. value? Cause if it's just, if you just give me a, a tool and not tell me what to do with it or what's going to do for me, it could be the best thing since sliced bread. But if it, yeah. if it doesn't have a, a, a Attached value to how it's going to ultimately help my mission and integrate, then it's worthless.
1: And to just amplify that point, Kevin, just a a tad thinking of technology, and I'll draw on, um, uh, let me use, uh, uh, thermal imaging cameras. So we've seen thermal imagers come from the time that they cost $15,000 to now they're so affordable. It's not uncommon to find every firefighter on an attack, piece of apparatus with a thermal imager. At least every company officer is. They've come down because technology has driven the development of the infrastructure and the software and the hardware and brought the price down and made it competitive against other firefighting equipment and appliances. And it meets a specific need of the fire service. The training directors in their role, they have a different need than the fire service. The fire service's need is got to prevent uh, danger, um, identify danger for the firefighters, save lives, assist and rescue. And that should never be taken away. That's their primary role and it's as it should be. Training directors have a central focus is, how do I have a tool that truly benefits my learners from an educational standpoint? How can I tie it in to documented or verified achievement of learning objectives, but also how does it contribute to behaviors that are repeatable on the fire ground under stress that are going to save lives? So their goal of saving lives is still there, but they all that realize the primary role of the training academies is training individuals in high risk events to have behaviors to develop safe practices that can be replicated time and time and time again, and not expose the user to risk. So they appreciate the fact that there's all kinds of tools out there, but the tool with a very singular deliverable goal of saving lives, it's worthy and it's honorable and it's as it should be, but the training directors need that plus more. And that's to your your point of having something that solves a real problem and the problem has to be based on what the training directors encounter in their day-to-day operations in their respective training academies. that's the problem yeah which is a little bit different than the problem faced by the fire service
0: yeah it, 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 same same but different in a way where it still comes mm-hmm. down to you need to understand the end users, the the training academies and their constituents Absolutely. of the, the soon to be firefighters or the the retraining. And it's all just a bunch of noise unless there can be some type of system integration to it. And and then I think that that kind of next brings me to the next point of all right, well it's cool. Let's say if you got a couple one one training academy by themselves or one fire department by itself that that looks at technology and is like, man, this is a force multiplier. This could really help X. Um, you know, how do you, how does it move from, this is a cool idea and this is great tech to how can this be something that's standardized and I don't want to say institutionalized, but made available and something that is, uh, legitimate and something that is helping the training Mm -hmm. academies.
1: So I'm going to use the example of fire apparatus because fire apparatus, we could argue is a tool that has evolved over many years to take advantage of what technology has made available to make the use, the driving, the operation and the construction of fire apparatus safer in many different ways. How did that happen? In the American fire service in particular, the North American fire service is unique across the globe. We do not have a federalized fire service. We do not have a nationalized fire service. In some European countries and in other the fire service is either a branch of the military or it's a federalized service I would compare it to like the FBI here in the United States where there's a singular head of a national agency who says, if we're going to have yellow fire trucks, they're going to have yellow fire trucks. But we don't have that in the States. In the States, we estimate there's over 30,000 fire departments. Each one of those is a political subdivision onto itself and has its own sovereignty, if you will, and can make determinations as to what it does. So how is it that a firefighter from California can land at Logan Airport in Boston and be walking down the street and see a fire and go up to the operator of that Engine 33 from Boston Fire and say, can I help? I'm on the job in Fresno. And the Boston firefighter say, yeah, if you can move that line, if you can do this," and that Fresno firefighter will know exactly what to do. How is that? In the converse of Boston to Fresno. How is that? Because of NFPA standards. The NFPA standards provide the framework for the training, the professional qualifications. Now the fire apparatus, fire apparatus started very early and an NFPA technical committee began developing standards so that over a period of time, I as a fire chief was a consumer of fire apparatus. I would use the NFPA standard as my baseline for ordering. They then developed training documents that supported it and professional qualifications for the individuals who are using the apparatus, the driver operator, the firefighter, and the fire officer. That that continuum of standards creates this environment where tools and technology can be inserted, but it deals with the design and the construction, the utilization and the purchase, and then the ability of the individual to perform with it safely in the intended manner. That's what technology has to embrace, the innovators and the technologists who are gonna find these solutions. That's the ecosystem. And the training directors are right in the middle of it because they deliver the training that allows the individual to utilize the technology that breaks down barriers good training allows the tool to be utilized as designed in a standardized way respective of what the developer intended it to be used for which yields success that success breaks down barriers people say oh i see how that works i think i want that tool they then become a consumer of the tool and use it in the field relying on the training they got from the training directors and i don't know In my mind, it's kind of a clear path, but because it's my job, so I hope it's clear to you, Kevin, and if not, please ask
0: me so I can clarify. No, it is clear, but I I do realize that I think maybe the layman's person, sometimes they think of standards or regulations as sort of like, maybe like, oh, like rules I need to follow or kind of bad things. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, while there is a certain extent of, yes, there's stuff you, you must do i like the idea of how you utilize standards as a, a way to drive innovation mm-hmm. obviously and sometimes it can drive up costs because you need to do a drastic change but within the fire context i know with nfpa standards there's a lot of you need committees and it takes time mm-hmm. but yep. where where are we now and sort of where do you see us going in terms of the integration of technology in certain ways within the NFPA standards and how that applies to training yeah. academies. And, and I, and I so, caveat that with that. I know I realize there's probably already a lot of standards out there that are being used and applicable to the training academies, but sort of how, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So I've been away from NFPA for a couple of years. So my information may not be as current. So I'll provide that as kind of a, you know, my, my disclaimer when the smart But when the guide, the roadmap to smart firefighting came out, there was tremendous energy. The National Fallen Firefighters did a technology summit where they brought together the innovators. The Research Foundation did a summit. Uh, I believe the uh, IAFC, the International uh, Association of Fire Chiefs, have gone into a technology um, summit as well. And what that does is it gives the innovators, the developers and the funders the chance to come together and talk to the fire service as a collective body and see what are your needs. Here's our solutions, how does it work? So that is a great incubator. But I think, and I would observe, the real force multiplier for technology is when the developer of the technology can say it meets a defined standard developed by a credible body for the industry you're in. So, if it's the fire service, I would suggest it's NFPA. And NFPA process is open to taking requests from the broad community for standards that are not yet developed, but should be developed. And it invites people to submit proposals for new standards. And we've seen, in my time there, we saw new standards for energy storage systems. new standards for spaceports. When NASA got out of low flight orbit and it went to commercial entities, the commercial entities came to NFPA and said, we have no safety standards. We're working with a technology standard, an electronic standard, a department of defense standard, this federal, we need something that's gonna simplify our lives, but not compromise safety. NFPA is developing or has developed, I'm not sure where it is in in its final stages, a standard on spaceports. Would have never in a million years that NFPA would be developing a standard on spaceports. Will NFPA be developing a standard on artificial intelligence? I think they have new committees that are looking at data and how it's being applied, collected and disseminated. Could they, would they develop a standard on virtual reality appliances in regards to firefighter training? I can't think of a better organization to do that, in my own opinion, than NFPA. So I think to your question of where does NFPA need to go in the future, it's based on the input from the community of where they want it to go. That's how standards developers work. And I don't think there's anything that's off the table. I think... And I think having the standard is a great enabler to the technologists. I've seen many young technologists, I'll never forget this example at the um, Research Foundation conference. We had a presentation by a young, co- uh, two college students from, uh, I think it was University of Georgia. They presented their design of a self contained breathing apparatus face mask with an integrated biometric monitor. So it was reading the fire, the user, the firefighters heart rate, respiration, pulse oximetry, and other vital signs to determine if the firefighter was getting fatigued or was in distress. These students made one visit to one fire department to see what type of mask they were wearing. They went out and they bought the mask. They did a design as an engineering project, printed it on a 3D laser printer, made their own version of it, and had it out there for use. Now, obviously, It did not meet the rigid criteria of the NFPA standards for design and testing as it should. It's an immediately dangerous to life and health environment. You want quality products, But that's what technology is doing today with the innovators, giving them the framework, the space and the computing power, the engineering power that if you've got a problem, you've got a solution and you've got the access to this, you can design it, you can build it, you can go out there. What's missing, the contact with the user and is there a standard to ensure the user will accept it as being safe for their workforce? Yeah, well said.
0: And I think in a lot of ways, what we're talking about here is enhancing this ecosystem of communication between different users. And users mm-hmm. is broad. It could be a government, it could be a institute in the academic institution, it could be a fire training academy, it could be the firefighter that's going through the cadet training school for firefighter you know. one. Um, there's a lot of users, and I think that comes to the importance of having the conversations with the stakeholders to which is a lot of the goal here of we need industry. We need academia, we need government, and the conversations need to be happening more and faster. Um, I love the idea of engaging the end users to encourage them to submit ideas and crowdsource information. Um, I think mm-hmm. it was United that did some initiative with uh, trying to t- find improvements and they did a whole kind of company-wide initiative. and. They had some engineers solving an HR problem and they had some janitors solving some engineering problem by just crowdsourcing information from everyone. And I think that's the, that's the kind of information and in, in, in leadership that we want to take and, in, and see in you. And we want to hopefully empower mm-hmm. and encourage everyone out there. If you've got an idea, if you, whether it's a standard, whether it's a technology, whether it could be used by the fire departments or the fire training academies, uh, we want to hear from you, and, and, and Ken, you and your organization are are great outlets, and um, you know, what, what would you recommend to anyone listening as some things to do or places, resources to check out or anything to, to look into after this?
1: Sure. So I'm going to kind of focus my efforts on the Smart Fire Academy concept because in the uh, estimation of the training directors, that has not been adequately, adequately researched or studied to the point that the innovators understand what the needs are. And reading the roadmap to smart firefighting report that was released by the Fire Protection Research Foundation in NIST, it's a concise framework and it looks at many different angles, but it also talks about as you so well described it Kevin, the ecosystem for a solution to be accepted and to be utilized successfully, it has to complete and it has to live within the ecosystem. And as you know, in an ecosystem, things have to be in balance, and you have to touch every critical part of the ecosystem to maintain that balance. So as we look to those who are interested in solving solutions on behalf of the training directors through technology, they've got to work with the training directors. There's got to be the communication. There's got to be the understanding. They've got to talk to the learners. They've got to talk to the instructors. That's the training director's ecosystem. Those who spend, I would suggest, those who spend more time understanding that ecosystem, having the conversation will be more successful with their finished product. That's my my estimation. Because that's where the solutions are going to find the test. That's where they're going to be validated. And we all have seen money that's been put into things that were kind of flash in the pan. Technology, when it's initially released, tends to be expensive until it achieves some market success and the price can come down. That initial cost is often a barrier to trying it out. The more you can convince the end user that this has been vetted, it's been accepted, somebody else has looked at it and said, yeah, that's going to solve our need, the more likely they're going to make the investment. And as more people make the investment, of course, we then get feedback, a second generation of the product, prices come down, you begin to build. Um, I'm thinking of Corey Haas with his automated vehicle annunciation system. I met Corey through the, um, uh, I believe it was FEMA, a Department of Homeland Security, first responder, next gen initiative, when they were doing their technology incubator and their technology startup conferences. And I met Corey when he was just basically himself and one other person with a concept, looking to get feedback, looking to make introductions, looking to build that ecosystem. And today, Corey's product, I would say, is getting quite a bit of acceptance. He's bringing it to market in scale, but it's been a journey. He did not do it in a year. Um, It was probably more like five or six years.
0: Yeah. But he I've, did it. I look at some of the best innovators in the game right now that are going from prototyping to minimum viable product, and, and yeah, it takes time. And, and Corey from Hassler is a great example. Um, is there any other any other texts that, that scream out to you of things that have maybe caught some early adoption that maybe are are not quite fully adopted yet, but you see as some yeah. promise? Um,
1: nothing that stands. I think there's some concepts. And that to me seemed to have a, a lot of promise. Uh, we already have several manufacturers who are using virtual reality, altered reality and artificial intelligence, uh, flame, for example, with their training system. And what appeals to me on a personal level, not speaking on behalf of the training directors, because we don't endorse, but what appeals to me from what I've seen is they brought more realism to the user to be able to experience the environment. Some technologies are kind of one-dimensional. You're put into the environment and you may have some interesting graphics and there may be some neat things you can do by replicating your hand or shooting an arrow. I've, I've tried some of those, but the closer to the situation the firefighter will find themselves in, And the more stimulus you can give to the user based on what that experience might be, the more from a training director's perspective, the more learning that's taking place. For example, live fire training at many of our members' organizations takes place over a period of days, if not weeks, starting at a very base level and leading to a culminating event where they're actually put into an ideal H environment and they have to attack a fire in a training structure and they have to meet certain metrics of performance. But the way you learn firefighting is you apply the knowledge and the skills against the stimulus from the environment, because that's where the real key to learning is. When the fire decides that you're not applying the water correctly, or you have not vented this structure correctly, there's a reaction. That reaction comes to you as the line firefighter what you do in response to that feedback, that's that's the key to success. That's what the training directors want to target. They want their students not only to be able to deal with the fire, but they want to be able to understand the fire, react to the fire, and control the fire based on using that stimulus. So the more the technology replicates the environment, reacts to the role of the student and gives feedback and the student can then adjust their behavior in reaction to the feedback. That to me is the key to the successful integration of technology and using live fire training as an example.
0: Well put and that, that's a, a great use case for looking at how to leverage technology as a force multiplier to better accomplish those learning objectives and what you just phrased is, is a great example. And I appreciate the, the, the context on those two. And um, as we, as we close up here, I kind of wanted to, I always phrase this in a different way, but sort of generally with where we are now, it's, um, well, it's almost October. It's September 22nd, 2020, 2020 has been a crazy year, Um, but with where we stand now, what's something that you're most excited about, and what's something that you're most afraid about? And obviously, you keep that in the context of fire training mm. and fire service, but sure, it could, or it could be general, but just kind of uh, interested in, in your thoughts.
1: Um, hmm. Most excited about
0: <clears throat> and most afraid or concerned about. Excited could also be about your sports team, NFL team, maybe being 2 0. Oh, no, it.
1: it's this is New <laughs> England, and you know how we are with our sports teams. And especially with, you know, the the, um, the NBA is living in the bubble. The Celtics are up and they're down. Tom Brady's in Florida. He's not in, you know, Foxborough. I mean, could 2020 get any worse? I don't know. <laughs> no. um, let's see. I think the thing, I think the thing I'm most concerned about, let me start with that because I think that kind of rises to the top a little bit more. I'm hearing from some of our members that the impact Of COVID and the ripple effect through our economy, through society, through our governmental structure, the the money that is needed to run the organizations to take advantage of innovation and technology is going to be very competitive. It's going to be very challenging to maintain status quo funding and to try and seek additional funding for new innovation and technologies, which is kind of a conundrum because in those innovation and technologies may be the tools to compensate for the lack of financial resources. They may require an upfront investment, but over the time, they may save enough of financial resources to allow that organization to still fulfill its mission and meet its need, but in a more cost-effective manner in these challenging financial times. There's gonna be a gap. So my concern is, who's going to fill that gap? Can the innovators accept less money to get a product to market and in the hands against the expectation of it being a successfully commercialized product and then recouping their investment? Can a gov- another governmental agency make up for the funding and i don't know about that or can industry as a whole find ways to support those organizations those training directors that are willing to step up and say i will try this you can use me as your pilot i'll be your test bed but i have some needs here and can those needs be met my concern is that the dialogue won't happen the connections won't be made and just the the challenges of managing in this COVID world, this COVID reality is gonna create, is gonna prevent that from happening. And I think the downstream effect, it will take years to rebuild that in recovery. It, it will create um, a default of going back to earlier methods of training and delivery training and teaching that won't put us on the forward edge where we need to be to be successful. Yeah, in our
0: roles, and I, I too can agree with that being a maybe a fear or something we're afraid about. But I think we could both agree is that while that is a a major obstacle, it is also the exciting opportunity to see about yeah. how we adapt to this and what we're doing right now from this video chat yeah. interview to the event you just hosted last week to the future events that will be hosted every day until more in-person events come back. I think that communication. And what you your organization strives for, sharing best practices. I mean, there's already there's so many resources, and that ecosystem needs to be pumped with. Mm-hmm. I guess like a hypothetical wildfire. Like we need that to take off. Yeah. And that's what that's what we're here for. Um, yep. And I think for anyone anyone listening, knowing that, uh, I know Ken, you're you're. I know you're a busy guy. You are an accessible guy from on LinkedIn um, or reaching out via the. NAFTD website and myself with my email, which I'll put in here or smartfirefighting.com. If, if you've got an idea, if you want to collaborate, if you think we could be doing something better, or if you're part of a academia or institution or business, or you're just a, a guy or girl in the garage with an idea, um, all that's important. And that's all part of the ecosystem that we need to use as what I would say is the exciting opportunity here.
1: Yeah. And as I was talking about my concern, It popped up in my mind, but that's the opportunity. And they will tell you, people who have studied leadership in crisis will tell you when times are the darkest, sometimes is where the best opportunity is. And people who can understand that opportunity, and I don't want to say take advantage of it because I don't think we should take advantage of crisis, but see a way forward to get beyond the impact of the crisis and be and say that during this time is the opportunity for me to meet those innovators, to stay connected to a professional organization like the North American Fire Training Directors, to be part of their resource network, their information sharing, their best practices, to learn from them and be ready that when things within the ecosystem improve, we're positioned to take advantage of that and be in line to be successful, even more successful and to catapult forward using technology as the enabler.
0: Yeah, so. let's not go back to where we were, but let's use this as an opportunity to have a, a leap. Yeah. Well, Ken, it's been a great talking with you. Actually, I guess last thing I'd like to know is, is where, where are you located today? Are you sore uh, sure. by the water?
1: Uh, <laughs> well, then, yes, I am. I, like I said, I live out and wear masks, and we live on a, a small lake. It's called Beaver Lake. And if you look at a map of Massachusetts over towards the central and western mass portion, you'll see a large body of water, which is Quabbin Reservoir, which is four towns that were flooded and formed a reservoir that feeds metropolitan Boston by an aqueduct some 90 miles east of where I am. But I live just below that in this small lake. And it's just a wonderful setting. Um, So many of us who live on the lake have said, and Kevin, I know you have time to share at a lake as well, that if you have to be in isolation or you have to be staying within your pod in lockdown, a lake is a wonderful place to be. So that's where I'm fortunate enough to spend my days with my wife and uh, the grandkids when they come visit. And uh, I just love it.
0: Yeah, I could agree more. I'm I'm fortunate to live by Lake Michigan and have family that lives in Sheboygan, Wisconsin and Elkhart Lake. And anytime by the water is a gift. And I'm a big believer in, in Blue Mind, which is the study about why humans are happier, healthier, more productive when we're on in near around water. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, 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 ties into so much more too about mental health and, and just kind of how some of our societies are shaped, but, um, that that's for the next podcast, next interview <laughs> between us. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I look okay. forward to it. Me too. Thank you so much for all you do for the fire training academies and the fire service. And, uh, I look forward to staying in touch and seeing what's next.
1: All right, well, Kevin, thanks for the opportunity and the training directors uh, uh, welcome the opportunity to work with you going forward. Awesome, thank you very much. All right, stay safe and well.